welcome back to Choir Practice, and I just want to thank you all for listening and uh, joining in. And again, this is going to be a shorter episode than some of the interviews, and it's going to be just uh, a couple of stories from my book, My Rookie Memoir of Father's Legacy. And uh, so I hope you guys are enjoying this, and uh, go ahead and pull up a chair, grab your favorite beverage, and uh, let's get started. This story is going to be from Chapter 5, and it's called... Steak knife wielding prostitute. <laughs> uh, while still in my third phase of FTO, I responded to a local hotel for a stabbing murder. Two officers were already on scene, and they told me that a Hispanic male in his 30s had been stabbed to death. Someone found him in his car and called 911. His car was in the parking lot, and he was inside with his pants down around his ankles. We found his wallet near the entrance to the hotel parking lot, and the murder weapon, a steak knife, was found in front of a restaurant next door to the hotel. Later, the dispatcher broadcasted more information about this call. A gas station attendant from the store at Benson Highway and Park Avenue called 911 to report a suspicious female. He said she approached him in the parking lot to report, I'm sorry, as he was working and asked him to call her a cab. The clerk stated the girl had blood all over her hands and tried to give him a bloody $1 bill for his trouble. He refused to take the money and she threw it in a trash can near the pumps. The clerk thought about the encounter for the rest of his shift and finally decided to call 911 after he went home and had a chance to get some sleep. This whole conversation between the clerk and the suspect was captured on the gas station's video cameras. Detectives were able to recover the bloody dollar bill and the store security tape. Our detectives then contacted the cab company to find out who the driver was, the name of the passenger, and to see where he dropped her off. When they spoke to the cab driver, he told them he had made small talk with the passenger. He asked her what happened to her hand, and she told him she had been jumped at a party by some girls who attacked her with a knife. She told him that her hands were cut when she tried to defend herself. She showed the cab driver a cut on her middle ring and pinky fingers on her right hand. He said he dropped her off on a street corner along 6th Avenue in the city of South Tucson. The following day, I was on patrol when a yellow cab drove up behind me flashing its bright lights at me. I told the dispatcher I was being flagged down and I pulled over to speak to the cab driver. He was the same driver who had given our suspect a ride on the night of the murder. He asked me if we were still looking for her. I told him we were still trying to find her. He explained that he had given her another ride early this morning. He picked her up at a hotel at 22nd Street and I-10 and drove her to a house on 6th Avenue. She was only in there for a minute and returned to the cab. He then drove her back to the hotel. He gave me her name again and her hotel room number. I drove to the hotel and confirmed that she was still registered in or to the room. I then called my sergeant and he called the homicide detectives. Once the homicide detectives arrived, we had officers surround and close off all possible escape routes. Then we walked up to the room and knocked on the door. A tiny female voice came from the other side. Who is it? Tucson police. Open the door, the detectives replied. The door opened and there she was our suspect, standing in the doorway. I could see two more people in the room, and the detectives immediately asked her to step outside. They passed her to me so I could place her in handcuffs. I asked her to show me her hands. She looked at me 
like she knew why I was asking, and slowly put her hands out, palms down. I then told her to turn her hands over, and she did. There was a cut on the same three fingers described by the taxicab driver. I asked her how she, got, how she cut her fingers, and she gave me the same story about being jumped by a group of girls. I told her it looked like she needed some stitches and asked her why she didn't go to the hospital. She said, I don't know. I'm afraid of needles. She later confessed to the homicide detectives, but claimed it was self-defense. She was a prostitute, and she was picked up by the victim. During their date, she learned that he had just received a Social Security check for $1,100, and she decided to rob him. Detectives were able to place her at the scene of the homicide because her saliva was found on the victim's penis. She later convicted. She was later convicted of his murder. The hotel room where she had been staying with her boyfriend and her brother were full of new clothes and shoes from several stores in the mall. I also found small amounts of marijuana and some gauze that she was using to care for her fingers. All right, this next story is called Beanbagging Robbers and Suicidal Teens. While I'm on the topic of flex batons, let me tell you about two separate stories where I had to shoot someone with a flex baton gun. I was selected to participate in a project designed by my captain and lieutenant that was aimed at getting rid of drug dealers in my beat, improving the quality of life for law-abiding citizens who lived in the area. A call was broadcast of a black male who had pulled a knife on a restaurant owner and her staff. When I heard the call come out on the air, I cranked it up a notch and drove like a bat out of hell to get there before he was able to get away. Plus, I knew I was one of just a few officers who had the flex baton, which is the ideal scenario against a subject with a knife. As I was getting closer, the dispatcher gave the suspect's description and said he was still armed with a knife. She told us he had on a gray pinstripe suit, sunglasses, and white tennis shoes. Two other officers and I all arrived at the same time and found a subject matching that description walking across the street from the restaurant. I popped my trunk and ran back to get the flex baton. With the flex baton in hand, I ran towards the suspect and I racked around into the chamber, which usually has a good effect on most people. The other officers fanned out to either side of me, drew their handguns, and pointed them at the suspect. We were now in a standoff. The suspect had a drink in one hand, and his other hand was in his front pocket. We yelled at him to take his hand out of his pocket and lie down on the ground. He just stood there, with a blank expression on his face. He had, a, he had on dark sunglasses, and I couldn't see his eyes. I slowly came to the realization that I may really have to shoot this clown. I knew the flex baton wasn't lethal, but my stomach started to flip-flop with every second that passed. I got a strong burn in my chest. <laughs> I asked the dispatcher to recontact the victim and make sure that we had the right subject. Moments later, she replied, the victim can see you out her window, and she says you have the right guy. I told the guy one more time, if you don't take your hand out of your pocket and get on the ground right now, you will be shot. He didn't budge. I already had the gun on him with the safety off, and I raised it to aim at his chest. My stomach turned, and I pulled the trigger. Flex batons have neon green stocks and actions on them. They almost look like a toy. And it would be hard for an officer to mix them up, but citizens don't know this. And, as I shot the suspect, I heard a lady across the street scream, Oh, God! <laughs> I looked back and I saw a large black lady with her hands and a look of horror over her face. I imagine she thought we just she just witnessed three cops execute an unarmed black man. Our suspect? He didn't even flinch. And I thought for a second that I might have pulled the pulled on the gun and missed him altogether. But soon, I think the pain began to override the crazy, 
and the suspect tried to flee. My two backup officers tackled him and quickly placed him in handcuffs. While we were in the dog pile, I asked them if they heard the lady across the street screaming. They said they did, and we all laughed. We stood our suspect up, and we couldn't find a knife on him. One thing I did notice was that a reporter from some newspaper was across the street with an extra-large zoom lens on his camera. He had probably heard the drama unfolding over his scanner, and he showed up. We quickly spread the word that we were being photographed. When we spoke to the restaurant staff, they told us that the subject walked into the restaurant, grabbed a knife off the table, and demanded a drink. They gave him a drink, he put the knife down, and he walked out. That would have been nice to know before I shot him, but I was acting in good faith that he still had the knife in his pocket. I was quick to grab the little sock full of pellets. I asked the sergeant if I needed to submit the beanbag as evidence, and she said that I didn't. I still have that in my gun locker to this day. Paramedics checked the guy out before we booked him into the jail. While he was being tended to, my sergeant asked him, Did you hear these officers yelling at you to get on the ground? Yes, he replied. Then why didn't you do it? She asked. His reply? They didn't give me no reason. If they would have given me a reason why I should have done it, I would have done what they said. No lie. What a crazy idiot. At the muzzle point of two handguns and a flex baton, this guy wants a reason. The different feelings I had were incredible. I knew that my flex baton wasn't going to kill this dude, but... It still didn't feel natural to have my beat on another human being. My stomach turned and I had the, the instant sensation of heartburn. My second experience with the flex baton was much smoother. I had played it out in my head on the way to the call and had already made up my mind that I would shoot this subject if I had the opportunity, if the opportunity presented itself. It was several years later and I had returned to the streets from working undercover. I was on my way to a call of a 16-year-old female who was holding a large butcher knife to her wrist. She was threatening to kill herself. When I arrived, I grabbed the flex baton and racked it outside the house. I figured I would try to hold it behind my leg, hiding it until the moment of truth, and then bring it up and fire it, if I had a chance. I was directed to a small kitchen inside of a duplex, and I was joined by officers Brad Sander and Mike Kishbaugh. They had their handguns out and we all yelled at the girl to drop the knife and give herself up. She scooted to the far side of the kitchen. She opened the back door and then closed it in front of her body, covering half of her body from our view. We stayed this way for what seemed like an eternity, and I didn't have a clear enough shot to effectively hit her with the flex. Outside, an officer had climbed onto the roof and slowly walked across to the other side of the house directly above the girl. We all heard the ceiling creaking and I think we all looked up, including the girl. She realized what was being, that she was being surrounded, and she started yelling, Oh, you did it now. You fucked up now. She walked out from behind the door and over to the sink, which wasn't too far from the three of us. She still had the knife against her wrist and looked as if she were about to use it. I pulled the flex baton up and yelled flex and shot the girl once in each thigh. I felt like an, I felt like an old-time western sharpshooter. I shot the first shot, quickly racked the shotgun, and I fired around into her other leg. We are all trained to yell flex, flex, flex before we shoot someone with it because if there are other officers on scene, they might believe there's a real gunfight, real gunfire, that there is real gunfire, and they may shoot the suspect with a real bullet. She dropped the knife like a hot potato, and Mike and Brad quickly placed her in handcuffs. Paramedics were waiting outside, and they checked her before she was committed 
She sat on the kitchen floor, crying and screaming at us, Why didn't you just kill me? As I stood there, proud of my marksmanship, the mother came rushing in and yelled at me, You asshole! I told her, Relax, they're just beanbag bullets. She said, I know, but you didn't have to shoot her twice. I thought, well, if you don't want us to fix the problem, maybe you shouldn't call us. Wait until she really cuts herself and then have the paramedics take her. Whatever. What really becomes difficult in times like this is that you want to high-five and congratulate each other for doing a great job, but you have to remain professional in front of the family. We always do our celebrating later. This next story is called Whizzing, uh, Bullets Go Whizzing By. So this next story is probably the scariest incident I've ever been involved in. It was May 2001, and I was working with three officers, Mike Kishball, Adam Rodriguez, and Joel McMillan, at a, no, at a local nightclub near Broadway and Craycroft for their first teen night of the summer. We were in uniform, but we were working in an off-duty capacity. The night was going smooth until about 11 p.m. when a couple of knuckleheads from South Park, which was my beat, showed up and tried to get into the nightclub. The bouncers turned them away and told them no one was allowed in after 11 because the club was about to shut down at midnight. The three of them left. At midnight, the bouncers pushed everyone out of the club and locked the doors. Parents were arriving to pick up their kids, but there was still a large group of kids waiting in the parking lot. Suddenly, off to our right, I heard seven or eight shots being fired. All four of us drew our handguns and began running in the direction of where the shots came from. The parking lot turned into pure chaos. There were kids screaming and running in all directions. I quickly lost sight of my partners, and I started screaming at the kids to get in their cars and leave. I stopped in the parking lot and watched as a kid dove under the ground. At this time, I heard six to eight more shots and heard two bullets ricochet and go whizzing by me. In the academy, there was a small ghost town of empty buildings where we practiced our building-clearing techniques. It was at the bottom of a small hill on the other side of our pistol range. Sometimes, if you were in the ghost town and people were up on the shooting range, you could hear bullets ricocheting all around you. We'd flinch, but the instructors used to say, if you can hear them whizzing by, it's already too late to duck. The bullets had just whizzed by, and I stopped to look around, and I realized I was standing in the middle of the parking lot. I was so busy worrying about all the kids that I wasn't even thinking of my own safety. I ran to a nearby pillar, ducked behind it, and looked in the direction from where the shots came from. I heard tire squeal and a dark-colored car sped away. It drove to the west end of the strip mall and disappeared around the corner. I ran between the buildings and headed to the front parking lot. Then someone yelled on the air that the car had just crashed. Next, the same officer reporting the crash said that the two suspects bailed out and were running northbound. As I ran to the north parking lot, I saw the two subjects running across Broadway into a business complex. I gave the address of the complex over the air because there were cop cars everywhere trying to close in and surround the complex. I ran across the parking lot and the eastbound lanes of Broadway, then ducked down behind a palm tree in the median, waiting to see if the subjects popped back out. I stayed there between eastbound and westbound traffic until I heard the helicopter circling overhead, and I heard that patrol units had the area contained. Then I started to walk back toward the nightclub. As I was walking, as I was walking back, I saw one of the two subjects who had fled from the car. He was now running back southbound across Broadway, right back to the nightclub. 
I saw two officers standing in the area where he was running to and advised them on the air to take him into custody. As I got closer, I kept my eye on him and watched as he tried to mingle in with the other kids who were standing around. I began to wonder why the officers hadn't grabbed him and put him in handcuffs yet. As I walked up to the sidewalk, I could see that he was drenched in sweat, not like all the other kids in the crowd. He had borrowed someone's phone and was talking on it. When I drew my handgun, I pointed it at him and told him to get on the ground. He held the phone out to me and said, what? I'm calling my grandma. I yelled, get on the fucking ground now, and he complied. The look on the other officer's face was worth a million bucks. Stupid freaking morons. I don't know if they didn't hear me on the radio, but this kid was just a few feet away and could have shot them if he wanted to. I leaned both my knees onto the kid's back and asked him where his partners went to. He said he didn't know. I reached to grab my handcuffs, and it wasn't until this point that I realized I still had my gun in my hand. It's never a good idea to grab a suspect while you have your your gun in your hand. If your finger just happens to be on the trigger, you could have a sympathetic reflex while trying to grab the bad guy with your gun. I quickly holstered and put put him in cuffs. I stood up and shuffled over to the patrol car. He began shouting at a blue Dodge Durango that was driving around in the parking lot. The SUV pulled up and skidded to a stop behind the patrol car. There were about four or five teens in the SUV, and the driver jumped out and yelled, Why y'all got my cousin? There were four officers standing nearby, and we all drew our handguns and removed the passengers from the SUV. Now I realized who my arrestee was really talking to on that cell phone. Finally, the scene calmed down, and a lieutenant announced on the radio that he needed us four officers who were there at the beginning to return to the main entrance of the nightclub. When I walked back to the front of the nightclub, I learned that a ricochet hit Mike Kishball in his bulletproof vest. I sat on the curb and called my wife, even before I met with detectives. I wanted her to hear from me that I was okay and not from the news. It was now almost 2 a.m., but I didn't know how long I'd, been, I'd be stuck there. I woke her up, told her I was okay, and I didn't know when I'd be home. I just pictured her waking up the next morning, me not lying in bed beside her. Then turning on the TV and seeing the drama on the news, she would have freaked. Our gang detectives responded and took tape statements from all of us. They had me walk them back through the whole incident and show them everything I had done. This incident occurred on a a Thursday night around midnight. I finally made it home around 4 a.m. Friday morning. At the time, I was working Monday through Thursday and I'd been up since a little after 4 a.m. Thursday morning. I worked my normal shift, 6 a.m. to 4 p.m., and after work, I was able to go home for a few hours. Then I drove to the nightclub and worked until the early morning hours. It ended up being a 24-hour day. In the days following the shooting, after I had some time to reflect, I was really having a hard time dealing with the whole thing. In the heat of the battle, I was pumped up on adrenaline, the same as if I had been in a foot chase, a high-speed pursuit, or an intense call. But as time passed, I started to think about the bullets that whizzed by me. I thought about what would have happened if I had been killed. My wife was four months pregnant, and my precious little son was two years old. I thought about him walking around the house calling for his daddy, but me not being there for him. This hit me like a ton of bricks. As part of our department's policy, I had to visit with the department's psychologist. She met with all four of us, and we said the same thing, that we were able to deal with the fact that we were shot at, but found it difficult to deal with the pain and loss our families would have gone through if we had been killed. I met with a psychologist one more time with my wife to discuss how I felt about the incident, how I felt about the incident, and to allow her the opportunity to share how she felt about it. 
She always knew the dangers associated with my job, but there's still no way to prepare yourself for something like that. The best thing that I took away from the shooting was that I used it as a learning experience. I told myself next time I would keep my wits about me and not get so caught up that I didn't take care of myself first. I was really angry at myself for standing in the middle of the parking lot without any protection from the flying bullets. I hate to learn the hard way, but I'll never make that mistake again. I said it before, you have to take every experience and try and figure out a way to handle it better the next time. On the following Monday, after the shooting, I had just left briefing and began patrolling in my beat. I found a truck full of crackheads driving aimlessly around the neighborhood. I ran the license plate, and the return indicated the truck was stolen. I called for backup units and continued to follow the truck. Before the other units could even get there, and even before I could turn on my red and blue lights, the truck pulled over and everyone started to get out. I threw my car into park and I drew my handgun. I yelled to everyone to get back in the truck. Once they were all in the truck, I looked around and I saw a brick-encased mailbox on the curb. I moved over and I stood behind it, waiting there with the suspects at gunpoint until more officers arrived on scene. Learning my lesson from my experience on that previous Thursday night, I found something solid to get behind. It was one of the first thoughts that crossed my mind. Looking back, I felt like I was thrown right back into the fire after such a serious event, but this was probably the best way to get back to work. There really was no rest for the weary. While I'm typing this portion of the book, it's 2008. In the back of the nightclub, still to this day, there is a pockmark in the stucco where one of the bullets hit the wall. Every time I'm over there, I park nearby and I look at it. It's a great reminder to stay alert and be careful. So I think at this point I'm going to wrap up. That was one more story than I anticipated, but I want to make sure that these are each you know 20 to 30 minutes long. But again, thank you for listening and thank you for, uh, for tuning in. And uh, I'll see you on the next interview. This uh, podcast is brought to you by this book, My Rookie Memoir, Father's Legacy. And again, you can find it on Amazon.com barnesandnoble.com, and it's also available as a Kindle ebook. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.